Hey, if you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. Again, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, it's our great joy to welcome you during this Christmas season. We are in a study of the book of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be a black one in the pew in front of you or uh, in your neighbor's hands. Take it out of their hand and use it for yourself. And if you don't have one, that's our gift to you. Uh, we are going to be at the very end of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We finished last week looking at, a, um, at the naming of John the Baptist. And uh, we are still at Zechariah's house. We are still probably at the baby shower. And Zechariah is about to open his mouth and give you uh, the second of the songs that we're going to hear in the first part of Luke's recounting of his gospel. The first was in the mouth of Mary, and like Mary, this is the most and last that we're going to hear from Zechariah. Uh, he's been quiet for nine months. He's only spoken two sentences up to this point in the story. Uh, he said, how can I know this? And my wife's old. And then Gabriel said, that's all we need to hear from you. And he's been quiet uh, for nine straight months watching what God is doing in uh, bringing John the Baptist into the world. So we're eight days in. We're at the baby shower. Zechariah has looked uh, upon the faithfulness of God to his promises to bring into the world the child of promise from two uh, elderly individuals who, um, who've been faithful in their walk with God. But would you agree that we're, we're at a pivot here in salvation history? God is doing a new thing after 400 years of silence in your Old Testament. The beginning of Luke's account here starts uh, with Zechariah and Elizabeth experiencing Gabriel coming to speak to them and inform them uh, that the time has been fulfilled and John is coming in, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. So what I'd like us to consider here this morning at the end of the book, uh, the end of the chapter one there, we're going to be in verses 67 through verse 80 of Luke chapter one. Uh, what I'd like us to consider is the need of Christmas. Uh, Christmas is a seasonal thing. It's something that we remind and refresh our hearts with every single year, but Christmas answers a need. One of the things, we have a kind of a metric that we use for getting our children gifts during the Christmas season. We get them something they want, something they need, something to wear, and something to read. And I can turn that, that's a great, I love using rhyming, so I consistently bring in stuff like, you know, something that makes them bleed, or something that they, you know, I, I change it every year. But that's kind of the way that, that we get Christmas gifts, because uh, we try as best we can with parents, and you know if you have kids, you love getting your kids stuff at Christmas, amen, parents? That's fine. That's good. This, that's good. You're good Orthodox Christian because you don't want it to be all about the fluff and the gifts, right? You want it to be about the need that is answered at Christmas time. Well, uh, I would propose uh, that the reason Christians find uh, Christmas to be such a precious season is that it answers the deepest need in all of us. In fact, this need that, that uh, is answered by Christmas is what Zechariah's song is really all about. It's the greatest need in all of our lives to this present time. It was the greatest need in the Old Testament. And during the Old Testament period, it was a need that was essentially passed over or delayed until the coming of Jesus into the world. 
In fact, your whole Old Testament looks forward to answering this particular need. It's the need in your life and in my life that we seek to disguise by making other portions of our lives more attractive, more beautiful, more impressive. It's the need in our lives that when we look at other people, we can easily diagnose it in their lives, but we have a hard time diagnosing it in our own lives. In fact, when we come to the Christmas season, this need is the paramount reason why we sing and why we celebrate and why we write songs about Christ coming into the world. The greatest need that Christmas answers, the greatest need in your own life, is that Jesus has come for sinners. The greatest news we have as a church in celebrating Christmas is acknowledging the fact that this is so bad. Our lives are so corrupt. Our inner thoughts and feelings are so twisted that we need help from the outside. We can't fix it down here. Amen? We need somebody to arrive. We need someone strong to show up and to defeat the sin that so easily entangles our own lives. That's why at Christmas time we all sing songs that explode out of our hearts because we know them so well. Our whole church comes alive at Christmas time because we remember and confess that our need was so bad that we need a savior from the outside, the king who is born. Well, that's what Zechariah's song is about. Zechariah is going to introduce the word sin for the first time in the book of Luke in this song. And as I studied this song and and spent time meditating on it, it's essentially a praise song. I'm not going to give you a lot to do because Christmas isn't really about us doing anything, is it? You with me so far? You don't get your kids gifts, I got that. Christmas isn't really about us doing anything, is it? Amen. Amen. Christmas is about what God has done. So I'm not going to give you a lot of, here's 10 ways to make your Christmas better. We're just going to sit back and listen to the words of Zechariah who tells us about God, tells us who he is, and we're going to get a sense of the awe and worship that Zechariah and Elizabeth and this baby shower must be feeling at this point. Amen? Let's pray. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray that you would remind us of the reason for this season, that you would remind us that you have sent a saving, merciful, tender, kind, strong, and triumphant king to save us. So as we ponder the words of Zechariah in this song, Father, I pray that our hearts would come alive, that we would leave this place more joyful, more thankful, more excited about this Christmas season, acknowledging in worship that you have been faithful to your promises, that you are who you say you are, that you haven't forgotten us, So, Father, this morning, capture our attention and our affections. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke, chapter 1, verse 67. Y'all there? Good. Three of you were there. 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this has been a filled with the Holy Spirit kind of family, hasn't it? Elizabeth has been filled with the Holy Spirit. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his very conception. Now, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit... 
in verse 67, begins to prophesy. Now, when someone prophesies in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's God's Holy Spirit-empowered uh, commentary on what's been happening. It's not merely Zechariah responding or speaking or observing things that are going on. This is a particular fulfillment, a particular moment where the Holy Spirit of God empowers Zechariah's words to give us, the reader, 2,000 years later, an understanding of what's happening in this moment. Now, I'm sure that you'd agree in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Gabriel's arrival that, that everybody uh, must be interpreting things in many different ways. You even saw that last week with the, the people who, who took these things to heart and began to talk about what then will this child be? So there's a sense, even as we close that last chapter... And they named him John, where everybody is now beginning to ask questions. Everybody's asking, what's going on? What's happening with the arrival of John? What's happening with the arrival of Jesus in Mary's womb? And what we're given here in Zechariah's song is divine commentary. We now understand through the eyes of Zechariah and the mouth of Zechariah and the empowering of the Holy Spirit what is happening. So... That frames for us the beginning of Zechariah's song. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So I want you to see something that's a contrast between Mary's song. Turn back just, just a page in your Bible to how Mary begins her song. Mary's song is primarily an individual's response to God. Would you look at 1, 46 and 47? And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Very personal, very individual. Now turn back to Zechariah's song and let's look at that verse again that starts his song. Blessed be the Lord God of where? Of who? Of Israel. It, what Zechariah is going to give us throughout the course of this song is he's going to use we, our, and us 12 different times in this song. Zechariah is a priest, which means Zechariah is an intermediary between God's people and God. He's involved in the temple sacrifices and the temple worship. So when Zechariah's song begins, he and his perspective is one of a corporate entity. He's looking at Israel, the nation. Because he's a representative of the spiritual life of the nation. So you would expect a priest to be able to speak things that only a priest would know. Mary is a teenager. She's outside of uh, Judea and Jerusalem and the main thoroughfare of the religious life of the nation. But Zechariah knows some things about history, doesn't he? He's been trained in the priesthood. He's got a background in these things. And what's going to come out of Zechariah's mouth is an interpretation of John and Jesus from the historical activity of God with the nation of Israel. So this is where his song begins. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he has done two particular things. What are they? You see the verbs? For he is, number one, he's visited. And it's, it, sometimes it's interpreted as come to give aid. That word can be interpreted that way. So Zechariah, as he looks at this eight-day-old boy in front of him, he steps back and he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited. And number two, he's done something else. He's redeemed his people. Now, when we use the term redeem, 
in our context as New Testament believers, typically redemption is connected to a spiritual reality, right? When we use that term redeem, we'll usually use it in the context of being redeemed from our sins. But when Zechariah uses that term, we don't have the New Testament interpretation yet. Zechariah has Genesis to Malachi. So I would argue and submit to you that Zechariah is using this term in the context in which it's been used all throughout the Old Testament. And when the term redeem is used in the Old Testament, it's particularly used in two different places. One with relationship to Israel in the Exodus. So when God talks about redeeming his people, he takes them out of slavery, out of the hand of bondage, and into covenant relationship with himself. The other place it's used is in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah will talk about the Babylonian captivity. So consistently for Zechariah, when Zechariah hears redeem and Zechariah uses this term, he attaches to it not merely spiritual elements, but he, he interprets it historically in the world of Israel where they would see it as a national and political reality. They would understand God's redemption of his people as being out from slavery, out from oppression, out from being harassed. So all through Mary and Zechariah's song, we've, I've said this during Mary's song, but I want to remind you of it here in Zechariah's. But in Zechariah's song, you'll see a lot of past tense verbs. Because Zechariah is interpreting God's past activity and God's past promises in light of God's present activity in what he's doing in John and Jesus. So who cares? Why does that matter? It matters because any time that you are going to understand what God is doing, the only way that you're going to understand what God is doing in your own life is through his word. You hear me? We as Christians don't just float on our feelings and subjective experiences. Do you want to know what God is doing in your own life? Open up the word of God, look at his promises, and look at how he's dealt with his people historically throughout thousands of years. Why should you spend significant amounts of time in your Bible reading in the Old Testament? Because otherwise you won't know this God of promises. You won't know this God of faithfulness. You won't know this God who has consistently acted and interpreted his activity by his word. So Zechariah is giving us a model for how we're to understand God's work and God's activity in our own life today. And what Zechariah does is interpret God's activity in his own day, the coming of Gabriel and John and Jesus, in light of God's past activity. That's why you have past activity, present activity, and future activity. Do we have some promises in our Bible that haven't come true yet? We do. So how in the world am I to make sense of my life today if I have promises from God that haven't been fulfilled yet? The same way that the people did in Zechariah's time. They have some promises that had not been fulfilled for 400 years. What are we finding in the beginning part of Luke? Consistent, fulfilled promises of God. Why? To remind us that that's how we walk with God. That's how we interpret God's activity in our own life as we understand who this God is, how faithful he's been, how kind he's been, and how he always binds himself to his word. You with me so far? God has visited and redeemed his people. Now, when we talk about redeem, 
in the Old Testament, you would agree that during the Babylonian captivity and the Egyptian captivity, is Israel doing well or bad? Bad. They're doing poorly, right? They are particularly weak. They're particularly harassed. They're particularly oppressed under the thumb of these foreign powers. I would submit to you that they are particularly weak. Now look at what Zechariah says next in 69. He is visited, he is redeemed, and in 69, he is raised up. When you read your Old Testament and the term raised up is used, it always has to do with a significant figure that is brought onto the scene by the hand of God. It's never an accident. It's never arbitrary. Anytime a significant prophet, priest, king, probably another area, priest, prophet, king, what else did I say? Ah, judge was another one. Judge, prophet, priest, king. Anytime that term is used of those individuals, it's a significant individual. And here in context, Zechariah says this person is raised up, but this person is not just any person. This person is called a horn, which might, I don't know, I might offend you if you are called a horn. I'm not sure what that says, means to us in our culture. But in this culture, a horn being raised up means someone who is strong, someone who is powerful. So this God has visited. This God has redeemed his people. This God has sent a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, who? David. Do you know how Matthew, just let me show you this. You know how Matthew begins his, his gospel? Turn back to Matthew 1. I'm just going to give you one verse from Matthew 1 so you can see this. We're introduced in Luke to uh, two, I'm sorry, to, we're introduced here in Zechariah's song to two significant major biblical figures from the Old Testament. Look at how Matthew begins his gospel in Matthew 1, verse 1. <clears throat> the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, that's interesting. Now come back to Luke chapter 1, and we've just been introduced to somebody. We've mentioned David at least two other times, right? Joseph was of the house of David. The prophecy that Gabriel gave to Mary was that he will be, be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So we're introduced in Zechariah's song, just like Mary's song and just like the prophecy from Gabriel, to the fact that there is a coming king of the house of David who is strong, who is powerful and will bring salvation to his people. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. The holy prophets in the Old Testament always explain God's activity. You ever read, uh, you know the story of Gideon? Remember Gideon with the 300 people and the fleece that you, you know, you, you pray that, let the fleece out, verse, you know that? Move your head in a direction so I know you're here. All right, good. You remember Gideon. Gideon's story doesn't start with Gideon. It says in the beginning of Gideon's story that they were hand, they, God let them and he gave them into the hand of Midian. And Midian uh, harassed the people of Israel. But before Gideon shows up on the scene, God sends a nameless, faceless prophet to the people of Israel to explain why they're in the situation they are in. In the book of Judges, the nation of Israel is in a bad place, right? 
consistently through the book of Judges. Like judges raised up, they follow the judge for a little bit, the judge dies, they fall into idolatry, they get oppressed by people, they cry out to God, God raises up a judge. That's a whole cycle of the book of Judges. Major repetition in the book of Judges like that. So here they are, here's Zechariah talking about God's faithfulness to visit and redeem his people, to raise up a horn, a strong figure from the house of David. And then Zechariah tells us, this is what God has been saying through the prophets of old. This is how God has been interpreting his activity for us. God always sends a prophet so that we can understand the situation that we are in. This is what Zechariah's point is. We can't understand God's activity apart from God's word. We don't know what God is doing unless God tells us. We don't know that we need salvation unless God informs us. We don't know the pain in our life and how it makes sense unless God explains it to us. So here's this moment where Zechariah is saying, this is what God has been saying throughout the holy prophets of old. So what is Zechariah doing? He's doing the same thing that we ought to be doing, taking the word of God, helping to interpret our circumstances, our emotions, and our feelings in light of God's character and past promises. You with me? As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Now here's the purpose statement. We've seen God's activity, but we haven't seen the why. We've seen that we're weak, And we need someone strong, but we don't know the purpose of our salvation. That shows up in verse 71. Here's the purpose of God raising up the horn of salvation, that we should be saved from our enemies. Now for Zechariah, that makes a lot of sense. That really doesn't make a lot of sense for us. In fact, the only time that our concept of enemies starts to make sense for us more often than not is in the context of spiritual realities. Like John writes for us about the world, the flesh, and the devil. That those are the major New Testament enemies of the Christian. But for Zechariah, as Zechariah looks back over Israel's national history, why is it that Israel had enemies? Why is it that Israel had problems What was the problem in the book of Judges for the nation of Israel? It wasn't merely that there were enemies and people who were oppressing them. They had no problem when they came out of Egypt because God fought for them. Do you remember the story of uh, Samuel? We've mentioned Samuel before and his, his miraculous conception in and of itself. But when Samuel goes throughout his ministry career and he gets toward the end of his life, his sons don't walk in his ways and Samuel is old. But Samuel has been a perfect judge. He's been exactly what the nation has needed. And Samuel gets to the end of his life and all of the people of Israel come around Samuel and they say, basically, you're fired. Samuel, we don't want a prophet anymore. We don't want a judge. We need a next generation kind of leader. We need somebody new. We need somebody fast. We need somebody strong. We need somebody to fight our battles. All this talk about sacrificing and sin and right relationship with God is fine. But what we'd really like is someone tall, head and shoulders above the rest, to go out and fight our battles for us. See, we want victory, but we don't really want God. We want conquest, 
but we don't really want to deal with our spiritual life that much. So Zechariah tells us he's raised up this horn of salvation to save us from our enemies. See, Israel's main problem in the Old Testament wasn't necessarily the enemies on the outside. It was the enemies where? On the inside. It was the heart problem. It was their idolatry. It was their constant refusal to listen to God and to his prophet and to his words and to his commands to repent and come back into right relationship with God. So when you look at Israel in the Old Testament, they're harassed by enemies. You can always trace it back to what's going on in the heart of the people. Have you found that in your Christian life yet? Have you discovered that a lot of the problems in your life come because of disordered loves and affections in your heart? Because we love the wrong things. We want control over things that we ought not to be in control of. We have lusts and fears and desires that run rampant in our lives. I have a, a particular affection for my own spiritual strength. I love being sufficient. I love being strong. I love having it all together. And a lot of my prayers historically have gone like this. Oh God, give me the strength to overcome this obstacle, this difficulty, this enemy, this fill in the blank. And without intending to, a lot of times my spiritual life looks like what I need from God is not an incarnation. I just need a little bit of, you know, a little eyedropper of strength in my own life. Because I don't really like to be all that weak. I don't really like to be all that dependent. I don't really like to pray that much. What I'd really like is a little bit of strength, just to give me a little bit, a little bit, to be able to handle the problems in my life with greater resolve, diligence, discipline, power, wisdom. What I really don't like is confessing that I am weak in need of a savior. What I really don't like is the fact that I am a sinner in need of salvation, that the enemies are too strong for me, that the difficulties in my life, the lusts in my heart, the passions that drive my life, I can't control them. And what I need is someone from the outside to fix something that's going on on the inside. You with me? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. So Zechariah praises God for his strength and for his salvation, for God's preservation of them in the midst of their enemies. But is this something that apostles misunderstood? The apostles misunderstood Jesus and why he came and what he was about to do. Even when he was resurrected, they say, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Can we please get out from under the thumb of these Romans? Is this the time when we're going to have national and political redemption and freedom? And what's Jesus say? Essentially, he says, nah. As if Zechariah sees what is about to come in the coming of John. He sees what Jesus is about to do, and he takes all of future salvation history, and he praises God because he sees the fulfillment of who this God has been for generations in the nation of Israel. Here's another purpose statement. Look at verse 32. I'm sorry, 72, verse 72. 
The first ones that we should be saved from our enemies and from all the hand of who hates us. So he's also raising up the horn of salvation to do this in verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Now we've mentioned mercy before. It's a New Testament word that translates an Old Testament word of God's hesed or God's loving kindness. We saw it in Mary's song. And it spoke of God's faithful, promise-keeping, covenant, loyal love to his people. So Zechariah is now looking back on God's past activity. He's looking this eight, at this eight-day-old baby boy. And he says what God is doing in this moment is not just giving us salvation from our enemies, but God is demonstrating and doing this to show us what his covenant faithful love is like. And to remember his holy covenant. Now look at how he explains the holy covenant in verse 73. The oath that he swore to our father, who? Abraham. Why did I read to you Matthew 1 verse 1? Because the same purpose in Matthew's account is shown for us in Zechariah's song. That we are meant to look at Abraham and David and to understand something about Jesus. Do you know that today, in 2022, you are about as far from Zechariah's song as Zechariah was from Abraham? Do you know that? So why would Zechariah's song matter to us today? Because Abraham mattered to Zechariah. Zechariah interpreted God's faithfulness to Abraham and faithfulness to David in his own day and time and what God was doing there. Why in the world would we take time to read the scriptures from the Old and the New Testament? Why would we take time to meditate on the song of Zechariah if not to remind ourselves of God's covenant and faithful promises that he has kept in the person of Jesus? When God remembers something, it's not that God was forgetting. Do you know that? When God remembers something, he tells us he's remembering to root our confidence in God and his word back to what God has done. So when God shows up and speaks to Isaac or to Jacob, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. My word still stands. You can still trust me like your dad and your granddad trusted me because I am still faithful to my word. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Now, if you have a cross-reference, you have a cross-reference there in verse 73 that says Genesis 22. I'm going to trust you do because you're reading your Bible. Genesis 22, don't turn there. Let me just give you, this is what God says in Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is the account of Abraham and Isaac where he has to lay Isaac on the altar, prepare to slay him. God interrupts him and provides the ram, the substitute for the sacrifice. And the whole point in that encounter is interpreted by what God tells Abraham. And he tells Abraham, now I know that you fear the God, fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son. The question is whether or not God had all of Abraham when Abraham had received the promise of God. And when he does, here's what God says in Genesis 22, verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said... 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, listen to this, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham looks forward to the child of promise. Zechariah looks at this eight-day-old boy, the forerunner of the Messiah, and says, I am looking forward to the child of promise. And he weaves together the horn of salvation, the coming Davidic king, the promises that God has given to Abraham, and now begins to interpret his present-day events and how he's seeing God work. Are you with me so far? Now watch what he says this at the end of 74 and 75. Here's another purpose statement. That we being delivered from the hand of our enemies because of salvation that God is bringing might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. When Moses gets ready to go to the nation of Israel, he has a conversation right at the beginning of his ministry and he has a conversation with God and God tells him, here's the thing that you're going to say to Pharaoh. You're going to tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go that he may serve me. Do you know how many times Moses says that to Pharaoh? Six different times. See, we look a lot of times at the Exodus and we go, ah, we're in oppression, we're in hardship, we're in difficulty. We're under the thumb of these people who hate us, who are our enemies. And God says, you're right, I'm going to give you salvation, but I'm not going to give you salvation so that you can do your own thing. God doesn't allow us to go into freedom after he gives us deliverance. He invites us into serving him. And the greatest longing of Zechariah's heart in recognizing that he cannot overcome the enemies in his own life, the nation of Israel couldn't overcome the enemies in their corporate history. He needed a, a victor. He needed a champion to come and to conquer the enemies of their life. And now what Zechariah says is that the greatest hope is that he might be able to serve God without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all of our days. Christians, do you have that? Is there a longing in your life because of what Jesus has done for you to serve him with your whole life? Is the posture of your heart, God, what do you want me to do with my life? God, where do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to give? How do you want me to go into this conversation about talking about Jesus? God, are you directing me into a new season of life? And God, may I be faithful to respond to you every time you confront me with your word and invite me into serving you. This is one of the main unspoken prayer requests of Suzanne and myself's marriage. That early in our marriage, we said, God, we will go wherever you want us to go. Whatever season, whatever place, wherever you desire for us to be, God, that's where we're going to go. Do you have that posture? Is there a desire in you to serve God in holiness and in righteousness? Note that he gives us the very character of God himself to inform our service. Are you serving anybody currently? 
Is there anyone in your life, in any season you are in, where you are going out of your way to make the goodness of God visible at your own cost because of who God has called you to be? This is the longing of Zechariah's heart. We have no more enemies that oppress us, God. We want to give you our heart, soul, mind, strength in faithfulness and in righteousness to you. God, take our life, all of who we are, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, I will go. Now, we, just, we already said this. Israel's failure to follow God. Israel's failure to serve God. Israel being given into the hand of their enemies was because of their faithlessness. They needed a triumph that wasn't just over external enemies. They needed a triumph over what is happening internally in their hearts. And that's what we need, amen? That's the problem I have. Now, if you can take notes in your Bible, I just want to do this. This is what I did. Is I, I, I usually take a text like this and I print it out and I look at it on a big piece of paper. And I saw things that I hadn't seen before in this text. And I want to show you what just kind of popped off the page for me. And you can connect these words to what Zechariah is about to say because all of what Zechariah has said up to this point had to do with David and it had to do with Abraham. And we're removed generations from those two individuals. But now he turns and he looks at this eight-day-old boy and he takes his present-day moment and he interprets this present activity of God with what God has done in the past to give us confidence about what God is going to do in the future. Watch these words come off the page. Prophet, salvation, mercy, and visit. Because they're all in what Zechariah has already said. Prophet, salvation, mercy, and visit. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Where did we see prophets before? You see in verse 70? We have prophets who've spoken from old. Who's John? You will be a prophet of the Most High. For you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways. This is what Gabriel said to Mary. I'm sorry, to Elizabeth, didn't he? Sorry, what are we talking about? Gabriel said to Zechariah. Luke 1, verse 17. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, how do we prepare him room? How do we prepare ourselves to meet the Lord? Would you like the answer to that question? Isn't that an important question? If I told you in one hour you're going to meet God, you're going to go, well, how can I get ready? Right? That's a pretty important question we ought to answer. Look at verse 77. Here's how he, John's going to prepare him. To give knowledge of salvation to his people. How can I experience salvation, Steve? Where did we see the word salvation before? You see verse 69? He has raised up a horn of salvation. Here's what John's going to do. To give knowledge of the salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The greatest joy of Christmas is that we have a message as a church. We have a message of, as Christians. 
that we can declare the saving, redeeming hand of God because we have the audacity to say that our sins are forgiven. Do you know when you say God has saved you, do you know what you're saying? You are saying that forevermore and for always, God will never count a sin to my account because he counted it to Christ's account. Never. That I can stand assured and confident in the presence of God. You're going to meet God in about an hour. You know what I want to know? I want to know how can I get rid of the taint of sin? What can wash away my sin? And when I see God face to face, when that moment comes, I have absolute concrete confidence because Christ has taken the penalty for all of my sins. And you know what the Psalms say? With you is forgiveness that you may be feared. Forgiveness is a scary thing because you're telling me that I can enter into the very white hot holiness throne room of God and have no sins accounted to me. And that's what John is about to do. He's about to show people this is how you can be made right with God. We're about to handle the historic problem of the nation of Israel that they couldn't get out of their own way because they needed a new heart. They needed to be cleansed from their sins. Verse 78, here's the reason behind forgiveness. This is so good. You with me so far? You all right? Here's the reason, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Now, have we seen the word mercy before? We have. We've seen mercy in Mary's song. We've seen mercy in this song. We've talked about God's covenant-keeping, faithful, loyal love to his people. The Psalms say that his loving kindness endures forever. But Zechariah adds a word to it. He adds this word tender, which speaks not just of God being faithful to his promises like God's a big computer in the sky. But it's the personality of God's heart. It's the compassion of God's heart. Yes, God is faithful to his people. Yes, God is loyal. But God's heart is for his people. God desires to forgive sins. God desires to draw near. He desires to wash them clean. He desires to defeat their enemies. And he does it from a heart of tender, compassionate, loyal, faithful love. So now, in the last phrase, like every good song does, every good song has an element of metaphor. And what Zechariah does in these last verse and a half is give us not promises, but he gives us a picture. When I drive downtown on Sunday morning, often I am driving over the bridge into the city at the time of sunrise. And often as I crest the bridge and go down into the city, I'm greeted on days like today, if you drove in the morning like today, the sky was clear and the sun was blazing and I couldn't see out my window. Because my window was dirty, which is a whole illustration in and of itself. But imagine a time and a place where the only illumination you had at nighttime was candles. We don't have street lights. We don't have, they didn't put flashlights on the ears of donkeys. We didn't have any of that. When night fell, night fell. And what Zechariah does is for just a moment, he moves away 
from the historical faithfulness of God. He moves away from God's tender and compassionate mercy, which are all true, but then he gives us a picture so that we would get the sense of what Christmas is all about as it resonates in our hearts, that we would participate in something that's very familiar to all of us, something that you could see on a morning like today in what Zechariah says next. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, if you're a Christian, or if you're not, you've had experiences like that. See, when darkness comes, it not only speaks to our ignorance spiritually, but it speaks to our complete inability. We can't work at night. We can't see at night. We don't know where we're going at night. We don't know the right way to go. We don't know the turns to take. We don't know how we're going to get to our destination because night covers everything and we can't see the things that we ought to see. And Jesus and his arrival is painted as a picture in front of our eyes so that we might think when Jesus comes into the world, it's like the sun rising. And as the sun beams down on creation, we get a sense of God's tenderness and his compassionate faithfulness and his loyal love as the incarnation of the one who gives light to all men arrives on the scene. You see how I said we aren't going to do anything today? Because what do you do with sunrise? You appreciate it. You give thanks for it. You're glad that it's here. You're glad that God in his faithfulness has held himself to his word. As we close, I want to read you something. This is from Isaiah 59. And a lot of these words are probably well known to Zechariah. Because a lot of these themes show up in Isaiah 59. It's maybe a passage that you haven't read before, but I'm going to ask Jared and the band to come, and I'm just going to read this as we close to give you Isaiah's picture of Christmas that is a lot like Zechariah's picture of Christmas in his song. This is Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity, they hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and the deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they're swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they don't know, and there's no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked to one who treads on them 
No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon in the twilight among those in full vigor. We're like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there's none for salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And righteousness upheld him. He put on his righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment so that they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord Father how we need the message of Christmas how we need to hear of your faithfulness and your kindness to us that you've forgiven our sins you've put them behind your back that you send the redeemer to Zion for your people who you love with tender mercy So, Father, this Christmas, may we be reminded of your faithfulness to us in sending John and sending Jesus into the new era of salvation history by which we see your heart, your faithfulness to your word, and your love of your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.